0: In the last two talks, I've been talking about the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. We lost our chanter who was helping along, chanting part of the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, So, in honor of Dhammaruan, I'm just going to stray slightly from... um, Moving through in order the four foundations of mindfulness, as well as not in order, <laughs> as I've been doing, and talk tonight about four spiritual emotions, which are just as relevant. This, these four spiritual emotions uh, can be experienced as a reciprocal uh, energy in the body, and as the as the nupasana, first foundations. And as nupasana, the Nupasana, the feeling tone, these four spiritual uh, emotions are very pleasant. And they are the native um, quality of the mind in its own essence, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So it applies quite directly to the cittanupassana, that is, the scene of the nature of the mind, the mind stream. And, e, and in terms of the fourth foundations of mindfulness, these four spiritual emotions are all dhammas. Dhamma-nupasana, metta-dhamma, karuna-dhamma, mudita-dhamma, and upeka-dhamma. Brahma-vihara is the name given to these four spiritual emotions. It can mean sublime states of mind. It can be, uh, it's rendered sometimes as a divine abodes or sacred home. Vihara meaning home or dwelling. And um, the Brahma meaning sacred or sublime or divine, that which is... Uh, transcendent they're also called the four immeasurables because once developed they are immeasurable in in space in capacity to hold all beings everywhere all things everywhere in this in this fold in this embrace of unconditional love compassion joy and equanimity It's referred to as the true home, the true abiding place uh, of our nature, the nature, the nature of chitta. It is the the mind heart. I'll briefly cover uh, each one of these four foundations or four emotions, and talk about kind of actions that might arise in our lives, how they how they can shape and form our lives and personality and the connections that these states of mind facilitate kind of beyond our knowing. you think of throwing, a stone in a pond and how little waves reverberate out in every direction. That has some immeasurable effect, you know, in in its in the waves moving out and how it reaches uh, the shore of the pond and so forth, in ways we can never know and never detect. To hold this image in mind, how each act or thought, or spoken word of loving-kindness or any of these brahmaviharas uh, can have a, a similar effect beyond our knowledge. And if there's time, I would like to talk about the uh, the, the transmission of energy that comes from opening to these qualities within us the transmission or the release of energy, the practical, the the affect of tuning in to these four divine abodes in, in the heart, in the mind, in the body. Metta, usually translated as universal loving kindness, or unconditional love, spoke about it last week that is love without the desire to possess love without wanting love without expectation and that it is a process therefore we begin simply with oneself our own mind-body process and then move along in the in the form of practice choosing meta subjects that most strongly um, elicit or fan that ember of, of a metta flame and gradually break down the barriers until, until the Brahma Vihara reaches its maturity and it seems unnecessary or superflu- superfluous to even hold a particular category, that is, the metta just radiates naturally out in all directions and, and no need for the phrases, and mentioned how in the earliest suttas, the Buddha, ne- the Buddha never gave a form to the practice of metta. He merely instructed lay women, nuns, monks, nuns, to, to extend or radiate or pervade the universe in all directions with unconditional love, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So we could call metta using some some terms that we may feel as immediate experience, both in vipassana practice, when it comes up, uh, as it surely does, And when we intentionally take up metta bhavana as a practice, a a, a radiant tenderness or warmth, free of like or dislike. Uh, And that's the moments when it's, of course, unconditional, free of needing to have a metta subject that is uh, acceptable or unacceptable. That is, the metta is just radiate, radiating and taking hold of wherever we direct it. We deal, of course, with whatever conditions arise in, in reaction to that. whatever difficulties, anger, or fear, or resentment, attachment, and so forth. Uh, as I mentioned last Tuesday, metta is a sense of openness. And oneness I called it in all these practices the practice of connection or the practice of relatedness because they all have to do with all other living beings and they all have to do with removing any sense of separation any sense of barrier to our own hearts our own sense of our mind body process and all other, all other life. So, this is what we call, I called it Vipassana metta because it's insight metta. It's, it's metta with wisdom, with understanding, as opposed to an ego centered love, self centered love. It's a selfless love. It is also, therefore, the experience of kindness and goodness of others toward ourselves. Our own hearts can be ignited by feeling others' metta. And sometimes in practice someone walks by us and they may be in such a a metta quality, you know, whether they're doing vipassana or metta, just so present and so mindful. That they're radiating out this kind of this almost tangible warmth, and we feel it. it just kind of vibes through the body. You know, or unbeknownst to us, you know, someone sending us metta from anywhere in the universe, and you know, or immediately around us, and we feel this quality of care, kindness, tenderness. And we let it in. We accept it. That's also a metta. And it can be just as challenging to receive the metta as it is to generate and extend it. So We want to regard it in, in both, in all its sort of 360 degree directional nature. In the aura of metta, in the presence of metta, our fears, our other's fears, can suddenly and perhaps completely dissolve. Metta is a safe feeling. On the opening night, I spoke of, of sila, the precepts that we take, and how in Burma, there's a of active aspect of that, not just the abstention of causing harm, but the intentional practice of cultivating non-harming through metta, compassion, joy, equanimity. Uh, I went to Burma 23 years ago looking for for the teachings of the tradition I felt immediately connected to some ten years earlier wasn't looking for a teacher just a quality monastic uh, container Um, and I really liked uh, the teacher I first worked with there and he would have been a great teacher for Westerners you know had he not met an early an early death through disease at. I think he was only 47. Um, at the time, it was the, the Mahasi Sayadaw who was the, the, the abbot of the monastery, and I didn't know, but this was the last year of his life. I or- ordained with him. And then uh, practiced with this teacher, Utundra, went to talks, and then occasionally met with the... Um, next senior Saida there, Sayadaw Upandita. And the first time I walked into his cottage to, to meet him, to be introduced to him, the whole world changed. The whole space changed. I was looking at someone who was looking right through me. Felt really naked and exposed. And completely at ease at the same time. you know, A slight <laughs> nervousness that he could look right through me and see everything that I was. But at, an aspect of that was that it didn't matter to him. Uh, all of my sides, all of the good, good sides and all of the, the difficult, dark attachment, desire, fear, and ill-will sides, I just felt seen by him, and I felt, I felt loved, I felt in the embrace of, his, of, his, of this unconditional love. I didn't know, I couldn't name it at the time. And within a short period of time, he, he, became, he became my teacher. I never trusted someone, someone so much ever in my life. You know, to feel so seen and so accepted at the same time and, and so unconditionally loved. Kind of the care he'd take, the, you know, Theravada monks aren't exactly the touchy-feely type, you know. <laughs> but when we'd go out, when he'd go out to Dana, that is, he'd go out into community homes to, to receive offerings of food, he'd often grab my arm and just sort of lead me, you know, and set me down. And I'd, just get, I'd get shivers <laughs> at his touch. And, and I never felt judged fr- from him. In, in, in 23 years, I've never felt anything but love from him, from Sayadaw Pandita. Because I trusted him so much, I did everything he said. And when he advised not to do something, I followed that advice. And the fruits of that were the fruits of the Dhamma. Because I believed, because I trusted, because I felt in his caring embrace, because I knew he knew what he was doing, what he was advising, because I knew he could see my particular disposition, I felt guided all along the way, and always have. The metta as radiant warmth or tenderness, deeper than like and dislike, deeper than preference, than choosing, picking and choosing, attuning to the goodness of others. Not their faults, but their innate, underlying preciousness. Just to be alive, just to be human. is such great karma that we begin to understand that the core of our being, the core of of all of us, is, is this goodness. And then to be able to receive, to experience the kindness of others toward us feel safe in that embrace, to feel trusting, whether as friends, as partners, as student teacher. Karona is the Buddhist Pali term for compassion. This also I would call the vipassana compassion, that is compassion with insight, wise compassion. Any of these practices can be done aside from the Vipassana practice. In in fact, these practices were were being practiced before the time of the Buddha. He incorporated them into the wisdom practice when when he attained full liberation. And the reason I say that is because there... Because this, the practices in and of themselves are are samatha, are pure concentration practice, and there c- can still be a quite a strong sense of of oneself that's generating this metta or receiving it. The vipassana part makes it selfless, brings in an understanding, brings in a, a, a wisdom. That we're talking about quality of metta that often is experienced as something that is actually coming through us or something that we are becoming part of rather than a sort of ego centered production of our will. So Karuna is the same. It is a um, a fearless presence in the face of suffering. courageous presence in the face of suffering. When when one practices these, one one can get a sense that there is a certain order, that the metta is is a kind of ground of, of connection, that essential feeling of relatedness to other beings, love, tenderness and we move to karuna, or compassion, it's a little more challenging to open our hearts to pain and suffering in ourselves or in others. So I call it courageous or fearless because that's the aspect that brings in the wisdom where we don't close down, where we don't shut down to pain, our own or others where we don't become identified in the likely arising of sorrow and grief. We open to it and feel it, but we don't mistake it for the pure compassion. Where we don't feel pity, which is a kind of distancing. Oh, I pity that person. True compassion is this empathic, connection where we feel the person's suffering as our own without identifying with it without being overwhelmed without drowning in it so it requires this this power of presence this mindful or wisdom capacity to within our limitations at the time you know to, to open to that person's suffering and five. Six, seven years ago now, uh, my dad was dying over pro, over uh, an eight-year, uh, eight-month illness, and as good fortune would have it, I, I just seemed to cancel the right retreats and be there at all the really important times, right when it started. Uh, in, in in shortly after when treatments began and I could take him for treatments. When difficulties came up, I seemed to be there. I canceled the right half of the three-month retreat uh, to be there for him uh, at the most important part, uh, his transition, his passing. In, in all those times, it, it was this... Ability to get there, you know, to move through my resistance, uh, my fear, my sadness, and certainly at the end my grief, um, and, and, and completely be there for him. Really healing in that, in those eight months as well. I, I hadn't remembered kissing him since I was 12 years old. Now I'd kiss his forehead, I'd stroke his hair, I'd massage his feet and legs, you know. I'd never done that before. He'd let me dress them, undress him, put him to bed. And I was able to do things my mom couldn't because it was too frightening for her. And in the last moments when he took his last breath, it was an in-breath. No out breath followed, uh, and my mom couldn't uh, stay there. My our daughter Chandra took her up to a waiting room, and there was this lovely. The doctor, his main doctor, was incredibly caring, calm, equanimous, and you know he touched my dad and made my dad feel safe. And so he he asked me, with my mom' presence, you know, to consider letting him go, without any pressure that it had to be now. There was no kind of timeline for it, no sense of, of right now. Just like at some time that decision should come up. And in the meantime, there was a you know, emergency center doctor and his people trying to revive him. I, st- I wanted to stay in the room with him. And the emergency doctor said, if you stay in here, I won't treat him. So I had to decide whether to punch him in the nose, <laughs> you know, or, or for the sake of my dad in peace, just step out. And I didn't go all the way out. I stood by the doorway and kind of stood my ground while they did their thing. And then, you know, the the primary care oncologist came after a while and said that the, the damage of the of the heart attack he had, which was his way of beating cancer, um, would be would be great. And now would be the time, you know, for to let him go if he wanted to. He would want it that way, he told me that. So I told my mom, I called my sister, and I went back in and just held the space alone with him for an hour or so, after everything was pulled. Talked to him, let my tears roll out, felt the grief, but I was ever mindful of the gratitude and thanked him for everything and really held the sense of of being completely present as I as I just was there for him, you know, and comforting wherever wherever he was going, telling him it was okay. I loved him. He was an awesome father and was there in the way I knew he would want me to be there. Clinging, not needing him to come back, not wallowing in sorrow, feeling the grief, feeling the gratitude, and being present. And this is that fearless nature or quality, capacity we all have. These four Brahmaviharas, as I've mentioned last week, are the innate nature. Of the heart or mind at rest, you know, as it really is, are even in every moment, every moment of pure mindfulness draws these, these four and other skillful associated states into consciousness. Every moment of mindfulness, there are no negative states of mind. No ill will, no attachment so valuable in the mindfulness, that so valuable moments of compassion or metta are. So to be there beyond our conditioning of contraction or controlling or needing anything else to happen, feeling care, feeling in touch with the pain, and likewise, feeling cared for feeling another's compassion to us without fearing that care, without thinking that we owe anything or expect anything. You know, can we completely let someone else care for us? Can we surrender to another's compassion, compassionate feeling, because it is so healing, because it can hold us and allow us to hold our own pain, to use our own pain to understand deeply, to use our own pain to grow more in, in our own compassion, compassion for ourselves, compassion for all who suffer. The Pali, the Buddhist Pali word mudita, Means um, empathetic joy. This is a an attunement of of good feeling, you know, of like meta-like feeling to 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 everything, to you know, an unfettered or a profound joy in just being. At this time of the retreat. We'll have moments of just the mystery and the miracle of just being. Kind of mind-blowing, you know, to feel ourselves from within ourselves when we, even for a couple of moments, let go of any idea about ourselves. Any projection, protection of ourselves. And you, at this time, when you go into your room bet a lot of you kind of look in the mirror and think, who is that? (laughs) Who's that looking back at me? What are these eyes and sounds and so forth? Joy opens us up in this unbridled sense of connection and just being with everything, a passion for life, an appreciation of others, those we love, first and gradually everyone who has who experiences joy we feel this empathic connection for rather than the opposite rather than envy or jealousy you know which is the prevailing uh, current of conditioning in our culture compare compete get ahead accomplish Everyone for themselves. It generates jealousy, it generates envy. This is just the opposite. This is a sense of those who are fulfilled and happy, successful. That we take delight in that, that, we feel joy in that, and that we can feel joy, not guilt, in our own accomplishments, in our own skills and gifts and talents as they come forward. likewise that experience of others celebrating our own happiness and fulfillment and success it's a lovely gesture you know how often do we say that do we put a hand on the shoulder of a friend or look into their eyes or give them a phone call or write them that they're so that we're so happy you know that they've that they're happy, that they've accomplished some goal, some art, some parenthood, some, something they really wanted to do and do well. Our daughter Chandra she's had quite a life. Um, her first retreat was 30 days in the womb, 29 years ago, and um, she's done a lot of practice. She's sat a lot with Upandita in Burma, and uh, she's, you know, struggled to find her own way. She's got lost a few times, and you know, most recently, and with her permission she said, if it helps. You know, she got lost in addiction. And I came to her, said I would help her if she would take that help. And she went to a place that treats you for that. And she succeeded in going through that treatment. You know, went back to school in that area. Got all A's and... Just last month, or um, in August, I, I met her in Boulder, Colorado uh, as she was enrolling for her last two years now in college at Naropa Institute, where this all began for me <laughs> in 1974. This is where I first came in contact with Vipassana, full, full circle. And... So, you know, she's just been glowing the last two years, two and a half years, and uh, clean and, and sober, and, you know, all her, her brightness, her, her deep native spiritual capacity. She's you know, at this Buddhist, Naropa Institute, if you don't know, is a Buddhist university in Boulder. And her, her interest is in literature, and writing, and in acting, and so forth. So one can take really great delight, and when we do this practice on itself, we usually choose someone who's very dear to us. Where just the thought of them being happy makes us smile. Just like in metta, we choose someone who we feel has really mirrored our goodness, and it's easy that they become our our met our first metta subject, and in in. Um, Compassion, we choose someone who's currently suffering in some way, physically, mentally, emotionally. Or even doing, at we love them, that they're doing actions that we know will lead to their suffering. It can be our initial compassion or karuna subject. So too for mudita, we choose someone really dear to us and then move from there. The quality gets developed and then we can pass it along all the categories, melting the melting the barriers. Murita, that unfettered joy in being, in happiness, our own and others, pure, you know, unconditional, that is not without any hook in there. I wish I could have that or I could get that, you know. Uh, just pure joy. And being able to feel and accept and delight in others' celebration of our happiness and successes. Upeka. Upeka is the term for serene balance of mind, very wide, wise mind, it's generally called equanimity. It has, it has the most wisdom because it has the greatest task. Its task is to hold or embrace the entire you know, immeasurable range of joy and sorrow experienced in the universe, in our lives, in the world. hold it all without being reactive reactiveness is the opposite of this serene equipoise this being in the midst of things reactiveness is the clinging to pleasure or wanting only good things to happen ignoring the reality that there's dukkha uh, the other reactiveness is the rejection, our denial, our repulsion, our resistance to the unpleasant, not acknowledging the pain, the suffering, the dukkha. The equanimity is that the 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 middleness, the being in the midst, and, and like bamboo, flexible, moving, responsive but not contracted in a reactive state of clinging or rejection. It's also not what's known as its near enemy. It's also not indifference, uncaring, insensitivity, disconnection. And that's how we know the difference. If the neutral feeling we have, which begins to come up now in practice, a lot of people's boredom, you look at it, it feels like, ah, I just kind of feel neutral about things, no interest in things. If you look closely, it's because of the habit we have of not attuning to neutral feeling. We're, we're used to intensity. We're used to things feeling either pleasurable or unpleasurable. You know, happy or unhappy. And that in the middle place, we're not so used to. So without the mindfulness, it becomes more of a dissociation, a sense of disconnection from things as they are, moment to moment. True equanimity is connectedness. No lack of metta no lack. is sensitivity. Deep response to the conditions of life, people's joy, people's sorrow, and the the capacity to be present for that. Deep caring. It's subtle, it's quite subtle, you know. Because part one, you know, one of our reactions is to want to fix things if they're wrong. If we see suffering, we want to fix it. Or, you know, we want to bring happiness. That's another way of fixing things. So it becomes an agenda. And sometimes we just can't fix it. Sometimes we just can't alleviate the suffering. The most we can do, and the greatest courage and energy for, for putting out all that we can to nurture and sustain people's happiness, including our own, or alleviate people's suffering, in fact, is this equanimity. And there's an aspect of this equanimity in all four Brahmaviharas. Without the equanimity we could not sustain unconditional love, wise compassion, unattached, empathetic joy. So this quality again is both a practice in and of itself and it's a it's a, an immediate fruition of mindfulness. In fact, the most pure mindfulness, as, it, as we're developing its stream, arises out of equanimity. It's that, it's that balance. The equanimity is, sustains and keeps mindfulness ever pure, ever responsive to the moment-to-moment changing experience. Non-reactive, total, balanced presence with things as they are. Things as they are. Equanimity is the attunement to things as they are. Without any absence of love and connection. uh, Also without any reactiveness. It's also the sense of coming from others. It's a sense of being truly seen. Heard, understood, recognized. Saida Upandita's great equanimity allowed me to feel at safety with him. The love was the connection, the karmic connection that precipitated my total trust in him and his knowledge of the mind and his knowledge of the path to freedom. The equanimity was that if I could say anything, I could show and share whoever I was and feel, feel okay just as I was, all the flaws, all the faults, and we could laugh at them together. You know, he, he loves honesty when people come in and tell him how unmindful they are, how scattered their minds are, how caught in lust, lust they are, how angry they are you know, sometimes he'll just burst out laughing. <laughs> because stuff is coming out, you know, and coming up. <clears throat> and he feels for the, their frustration. And then he has some, something real from the student that he can then help attune the mindfulness to. Guide them through it. How to be with it. The so feeling in the presence of someone of equanimity feels that being, that we're being totally affirmed. Affirmed for who we are. No need to change in this moment who we are. We don't have to put on an act. You know? We don't have to give a good report. So all these Brahma-viharas, metta, unconditional love, karuna, Wise compassion, mudita, the non-attached joy, and the uh, serene, wide mind of equanimity, upeka. They are moments outside of fear and desire. They are non-reactive moments. They are deeply, emotionally evolved qualities of our heart, our mind. Fluid fluid emotional responses to life as it is in, in this container in our wisdom practice you know they come up we notice them we, we also do practices at least once a week some of you are expanding on that in the world you know as these develop and the more we practice these the more they sort of graft themselves onto the stream of our consciousness you know emerge then it's just the fluid response moment to moment to everything, the appropriately compassion immediately arising where there's pain or suffering, mudita where there's happiness, just the sense of connectedness, that tender heartedness of metta, and that ever needed balance, that ever needed quality of being in the midst of things as they are, that we know is so valuable here in meditation but no less so out in life, out in daily life. I've been going to Burma for... um, about 27 years now and all added up, I spent many, many years there. Uh, Michelle and I teach a retreat in Upper Burma. This will be the eighth year for that. We have a project in health and education and we also support three nunneries, about 100 monks, uh, nuns uh, and, and a monastery that support, with only one nun and one monk that supports 500 orphans, that, that we've just learned about, kind of overwhelming. And um, it's been part of the sense of reciprocity, giving back what we've received, in only a single generation now, only about 25 years, that, uh, that the Dhamma has been coming to the West, that it cannot be completed, in my view, without giving back at the source, at the place, both through just one's own self-inspired generosity, health education stuff we do, and teaching with the teachers. So we teach with the monks, the Burmese saithas there, and very soon we begin teaching with uh, the nuns, particularly the one I've mentioned before, who's been strong influence in my life and practice the last two years, Dal And I'm even inspired to create a, a, a monastery uh, or a nunnery for her uh, on the coast of Bay of Bengal. Western sponsored <clears throat> so that there's not the politics of patriarchy, as we find in all religions and she can shine in her own light. Uh, there are very, very attained, highly attained, and very gifted nuns there. And, the, you know, they end up in the shadows. And that's just because of archaic custom. So by going back there, we Westerners bring certain gifts back of awareness, of sensitivity, of change, of modernization, you know, of a con- contemporizing the the relevance of Dhamma, while staying true to the lineages. Um, and in this time, I met and became very close friends with Da Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the democracy leader and in 1991 Nobel Peace Laureate. Of the 14 years she's been there, she's been about eight and a half of those years under house arrest. <clears throat> in the last four months, she's actually was held in a secret prison somewhere after a government-sponsored attack that killed about 100 of her followers, tried to kill her and um and just recently in the last week she had a uh, some major surgery which from which she's recovering and uh it was a face-saving opportunity for the regime the military regime to let her come home so she's now at home in the in the in the years that I got to know her I I felt that I was in in the presence of someone real. Real in the sense of having the same emotions that we all have. I saw her getting really angry at times, upset, even raging. (laughs) And then I'd see her bring awareness to that and bring balance back to herself in all these long periods, the first time was six and a half years of house arrest, she used it to practice the best she could. She's never done a retreat. She had Sai Pandita's book and would read that and she'd try and cultivate and reflect on these four emotional, spiritual qualities, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And in fact, her her spiritual politics, as I would call them, are all born out of these four foundations. And (coughs) we've had hours of discussions, you know, about how to go about it. And I immediately saw that she wouldn't, she did not hold a blaming attitude against the ignorance of the generals. She spoke about unskillful behaviors. She spoke about actions needing correction. She spoke about suffering of the 50 million Burmese people. But she already had the the spiritual virtues, you know, the paramis, um, to know better than that polarizing subject-object thinking and acting that would only perpetuate the ignorance and perpetuate the hold and oppression of the Burmese people under fear. She's a slight woman, like barely a hundred pounds. Very beautiful within and without and fearless. Fearless enough to face her own fears and struggle every day to be more mindful, more present, more rooted in these Brahma Viharas. And, and she, she's handled all these long periods of isolation with this irrepressible spirit. Just to think of her gives me a positive sense of, of, of hope and view in, in the world we live in today, which, you know, as we all know, has recently been. Dark, difficult, and despairing. She knows we're out here, you know, and and up to last year, every year, I and others could uh, send letters and books, and uh, so she knew, she knows there's a support. The last four months, completely cut off, And, and still now under virtual home house arrest but someone with that determination. She's not perfect, she's human, uh, and she uses everything she does as her practice, her politics or her spiritual practice, And and the goal of the freedom of the people of Burma is her spiritual practice. She's also promised Upandita that she would sit a retreat once democracy came to Burma, she promised me that as well. And just be patient, she said. She's very determined, you know, very determined mind. I, and I, when I run through the ten paramis, she's got g- good strength in, just, in, all, just in all of them. So I, I see this as, I see her taking on these qualities which affect Our thoughts, our speech, and our actions, we can become one. We can think with metta, with compassion, with joy, with equanimity. We can speak, motivated, born out of this fundamental basis in uh, in our minds of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. We can act. Our bodies can be metta in motion. Compassion in action, empathetic joy, and just the embodiment of equanimity. From our practices, from the mindfulness practice, from doing these practices in and of themselves. The effect of one of our actions, as I referred to in the beginning of the talk, can have reverberations so immense and so beyond our imagination. A single act of pure good intention, you know, like, like the rippling out in the pond, can spread outwards invisibly, mysteriously, with such great consequences. the seeds planted by those like Aung San Suu Kyi, and this story I'm gonna tell now about um, two cultures separated by thousands of years and thousands of miles. I've mentioned before a little bit about the revival, rebirth of the Polynesian wayfarer sailing, voyages, that has been absent for 600 years I spoke of how um, they, they regained their knowledge of non-instrument navigation from this Micronesian man. So in 1995, after 20 years of this, th- there was the inspiration to build a canoe all of indigenous materials. We couldn't find any in the Hawaiian Islands. The old great koa trees were gone, dead, cut, not big enough. They came to Alaska and met this man named Judson Brown, an elder for uh, Native Alaskan Americans. He called a tribal council. And they all decided that they would give these great ancient primal trees you know, what was necessary to build the two hulls, the double hull sailing canoe. When my friend Nainoa asked about you know, their cost, he said, Judson said, never ask how much they cost, and never return a gift. Still he felt unworthy of receiving the gift, and went home, spoke to our own elders in Hawaii, who said, first, do something in, in restoration of our own culture. So They planted 11,000 koa trees, that's the hardwood that the Hawaiians used to make trees. And several months later they came back said to Judson, we're ready. What is this connection? What was the connection? They know from articles traded and foods and whatnot that there was some connection in the past thousand years. No one knows when. There were no records kept. Nothing's left in, in any of the chants. Interesting enough, um, our uh, gene- uh, genealogy, archaeology, can trace the Hawaiians back through southern Polynesia, Indonesia, Micronesia, back up to Southeast Asia, and along the coast, as far as area of Taiwan. The Hawaiian genealogy, and of course the native Alaskans, either sailed. Or walked across the Bering Straits. They've been there a long, long time. Who can say? But there is this immediate recognition and affiliation and meta between them. So when Ninoah came back, he says, We can now accept your gifts. Which they they did graciously in great ceremony and great sense of noble sacrifice. Took the logs home and in community they made the Hawaii Loa, this indigenous uh, material canoe. And later on they sailed up the coast, Canada to Alaska, to give grat- to offer to give gratitude and thanks. Sailed into the, the shoreside village. Judson came out and all the villagers came out and, uh, and once again, they just lavished gifts everywhere they went. In, in one case, an old grandmother who was shy, sent her grandson you know, out with a fistful of crumpled $100 bills and put it on a map, on a mat. You know, and Hawaii's part of the United States and there's a lot of grants and a lot of us support the Polynesian Voyaging Society in, in terms of, of wealth a lot more there than in Alaska. And so Nainoa, Nino, my friend, said, I don't know what to say. And Judson said, My young man, in our cult- culture, we measure wealth uh, not by how much we accumulate, but by how much we give away. This is what has sustained our culture. Sharing is what has sustained our culture. Generosity has sustained our culture for 12,000 years. That's, where, that's why somewhere along the way, we, we all, we must have connected. I would like to end with a a poem in the next talk. I'll try and work in the, the transmission the release of energy from practicing these practices what they what they can rele- release and offer to our wisdom practice ran out of time tonight it's called the river this is also a Mary Oliver poem just because I was born precisely here or there in some cold city or other don't think I don't remember how I came along like a grain carried by the flood, on one of the weedy threads that pour toward a muddy lightning, surging east, passing monkeys and parrots, past trees with their branches in the clouds, until I was spilled forth and slept under the blue lung of the Caribbean. Nobody told me this, but little by little, the smell of mud and leaves returned to me. And in dreams, I began to turn, to sense the current. Do dreams lie? Once I was a fish, crying for my sisters in the sprawling crossroads of the delta. Once among the reeds, I found a boat, as thin and lonely as a young tree. Nearby, the forest sizzled with the afternoon rain. Home, I said. In every language, there's a word for it. In the body itself, climbing those walls of white thunder, past those green temples, there's also a word for it. I said, home. Sit for a moment in the home of our heart. Every once in a while, reflect how every moment of mindfulness draws like a magnet unconditional love, compassion, joy, and equanimity our true home.